In the first chapter of Revelation, last week we looked at the first eight verses. This evening we will look at verses 9 through 20. And then we'll begin the next seven segments of this series looking at the letters to the various churches in Asia. But for this evening, our text is Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 9 through the end of the chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of God is sufficient. The Word of God is inerrant. And the Word of God is authoritative. Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have brought this word to us. We ask this evening, O Lord, that you would make it clear to us, that you would remind us that you desire us to know things from this book. You desire to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in that, O Lord, we ask that we might see him, that we might see the Lord Jesus, know him more, and love him more. We ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this opening chapter continues to lay out for us 
a revelation of Jesus Christ. And you remember what that word revelation means? It is an unveiling. It is a pulling back the curtain that we might see truly who Jesus is. And Revelation is a book that puts things in stark imagery, you recall. There's going to be many things as we go through it that are hard to understand. So far, there has not been much that has been difficult to understand. But I think there is often something that is difficult to accept. Difficult, not the first thing that we think of. We have that here this evening. Our first thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ are not those that are laid out in Revelation chapter 1. If we're honest with ourselves, we are used to a Jesus who is, in the words of the poet, Jesus meek and mild. You know the Jesus of the Christmas carols who is the baby that never cries. Not a sound he makes. He's perfectly gentle. He's patient to a fault. He is someone who is as non-threatening as can be. Especially in our culture today, Jesus is this sort of soft, non-threatening, good teacher. Well, he is a good teacher. And he is gentle. He is meek. But he is also the king of the universe. He is also the Lord of his church. He is also the true and living God. And we have a picture of that as the curtain is pulled back here. Why do we have this picture? Some might say we need to know Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his shining brilliance, because we ought to be able to take that. We ought to be honest with the Bible, and we ought to be able to accept a Jesus who is not meek or mild. But I don't think that's John's purpose here, and I don't think that's the Lord's purpose You see, Jesus is revealed as the all-powerful, almighty king of the universe, not to spite his people, but for the sake of his people. We see him in his power because we are needy. We see him in his strength because we are weak. We see him in his glory because we are struggling with difficulties. And so John reveals to us who Jesus is. And so what I would like us to see in this relationship between the church and the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Son of Man, is this. First, we will see the church in need. We will see that the church is one that is in need. And then secondly, we will see the response to that need is to see the glorious King. Jesus is indeed a King and He is glorious. And then finally, we will see that not only is he a glorious king, but he is the trustworthy king. He is a king that we can trust with everything that we hold dear. A church in need, the glorious king, and the trustworthy king. Let's start then by looking at the church in need. We see it here, beginning in verse 9, as we are reintroduced to the writer of this book. It is John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John is on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, let me fill in a little bit of the gaps for you with some church history. This is one of the reasons why church history is important. 
The ancient church historians, Eusebius and others, fill in some of the gaps for us for John. We're told, according to the tradition of the church, that John left Jerusalem later in life, where he was one of the pillars of the church, and went to minister in Ephesus. He ministered at Ephesus later in life, and by that I do mean later, in his 60s and 70s. And like Peter, like he earlier, like so many, he preached the Lord Jesus Christ. And that did not make the authorities happy. This is a constant theme. If you think that today is the only time in which society or the government can be hostile to the truths of the gospel, you need to think again. Because John, as an old man, in very likely his mid-80s or older, was sent on exile to an island called Patmos. Now, Patmos was an island about 10 miles by 5 miles, and it was remarkable for its amount of rock, not trees, not greenery, not luscious streams, but it was basically a slab of volcanic rock sitting off the coast of what is now modern Turkey. These types of islands appear in various places. Some of you that are familiar with history would know that Napoleon was exiled to a similar kind of island at St. Helena. And so it was designed to be a place that was uncomfortable where no one would go and visit him, and he would simply live out his days. Patmos was not the Club Med of the first century. And he was sent there, he tells us, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. So he wasn't sent there because he was a troublemaker. He wasn't sent there because he wanted power or authority. He was sent there because he had been honest, and he had been forthright with the word of God preaching and teaching the Word of God and testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we will see throughout the book of Acts, that was sure to make both the Jews and then eventually the Roman authorities upset. And the way they dealt with these sorts of things was they imprisoned folks. And so John, who's a late 80-year-old man, is sent off to a harsh exile. He reminds us that he is a partner with us in tribulation. So as he writes to these churches, he knows the struggles that they are going through. He is also in tribulation. He is in exile. He is in trials. And this should not surprise us because tribulation is the norm for the Christian. Do you remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said in John 16? In the world you will have tribulation. But never forget that second part. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Paul, when he advises his young pupil, Timothy, says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then, of course, we will see in Acts 14 that the disciples are persecuted. And Paul reminds them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is something that is normative for us. So as you struggle as your family doesn't understand you, as your co-workers don't get you and why you are concerned about the things of God, as your friends 
do not desire the same things that you desire, you need to understand this is a part of being a Christian. It's not because you are odd. It's because the world is at odds with Jesus. You see, it's like this. I'm sure that Andrew has learned in his military principles that the closer you are to a valuable target, a machine gun nest, a tank, a flamethrower, the more fire you come under. And this is true for the Christian as well. The closer we are to Jesus, the more fire we come under from the enemy as the enemy seeks to destroy the kingdom of God. But I want to remind you of what John reminds these churches here in verse 9. That all of this tribulation is placed in a context and the context that it is in Jesus. You see, so as we face tribulation, as we have needs as a people, we need to understand that we experience them in Jesus Christ. We are wrapped safely in the arms of our Savior. That's the only place we can endure. As we face the challenges of cancer and illness and poverty and struggles, the only place to be safe is in the arms of Jesus. You see, if you are waiting for your struggles to go away before you will close with the Lord Jesus Christ, before you will listen to His commands, you are going to be waiting a long, long time. What you must do is put aside the cares and concerns that you have for those trials and tribulations and come to Jesus by faith. And then you can face the difficulties, no matter how horrifying they are, because you are in Jesus And this will be a theme that we will see over and over again throughout this book, that we experience trials as we see the kingdom expand and as we see a call to endure. Do you see John telling us that? He is a partner not only in tribulation, not only in the kingdom, but also in patient endurance. This word here for patient endurance is a wonderful word. It's so good of a word, you need two words to translate it. You can't just translate it patience. You can't just translate it endurance because it has both ideas. You see, there is an element of patience, being quiet, being settled, being passive, not being overly excited by the things that surround us. But being a Christian is not just being passive, it's also being active. And you see, there is an endurance that goes on with this as we stand firmly for the truth, as we stand firmly for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are patient, but we also endure. We are active as we stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the idea here is, we all face temptations to cut and run. You know that experience? Perhaps you've watched a war movie, or you've uh, been in a struggle, and everyone's standing in the line. And the danger gets closer. The enemy marches and marches and marches. And then all of a sudden, some people can't take it. They cut and run. You see, the Christian has that temptation too. But John tells us that we are called to patiently endure, to stand firm under pressure. This is the context in which Jesus is revealed. A church and its leaders that are under attack from Satan under tribulation and trials, needing to endure, needing the strength 
to endure. How can we do that? Because we have our own struggles. It would take me too long to list all of the trials, tribulations, and struggles that we have. Wouldn't it? In our families, with our health, with our finances, with our relationships. The only way that we can endure is by looking to the glorious King of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as John is in exile on Patmos, he reminds us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he heard a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, this, I want to remind you, is the first place in which we have this term, the Lord's day used. It becomes then common throughout the 2nd and 3rd century, and it describes, well, today. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's day. It's the day that He has set apart that we might worship Him. Now, I want you to understand why this happens on this day. You see, many of us have a concept of the Lord's day as a day full of don'ts. It's the day when we can't do this, and we can't do that, and we can't do the other thing. When in reality, the biblical view of the Lord's Day is it's a day of rest and comfort and safety in Jesus. There's a reason why Jesus comes to John on the Lord's Day. He comes to him in a context of worship, a context in which he is focused upon the Lord, a context in which he is safe. You see, this is what the Lord's Day does for us in a small way. Clement of Alexandria put it this way. He says, A true Christian, according to the commands of the gospel, casts out all bad thoughts, cherishes all goodness, and honors the resurrection of the Lord on the Lord's Day. It is not because it is mere tradition that I remind you each Sunday morning to cast aside the cares of the coming week. It's because we are called to focus on Jesus, to find comfort and find solace in Him. And in this Lord's Day, on this Lord's Day, John tells us that he is in the Spirit. And this means that he is caught up in a kind of ecstatic trance, getting revelation from God himself. It's not unlike we saw with Peter in Acts chapter 10. It's not unlike what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians when he says he is gathered up into the third heaven. You see, he is about to get a unique revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a unique position that John is in. He is being led completely by the Spirit. Are we led by the Spirit in our challenges and difficulties? And by that I don't mean are you waiting to be caught up in an ecstatic trance and see sheets come down from heaven. But I mean, do you trust the Spirit to lead you through decisions? Do you trust the Spirit to give you comfort? You see, the Holy Spirit speaks to you, too, all the time. Every day the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Well, not audibly, but here. These are the very words of the Spirit of God. So do you face the day in the Spirit? Will you gain comfort from that, even as John did? John is in the Spirit He is on the Lord's day, and he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is found where he is always found, in the midst of his people. Do you see that? John turns around, and he looks, and he sees seven lampstands. 
And we're told later that it represents the seven churches of Asia. I think this is a further description of how the church is changing, even as we're seeing in Acts. Some of you may recall from the Bible or from having Jewish friends that in the Jewish religion there is a menorah. It is one single lampstand made up of how many flames? Seven. It is a single lampstand with seven flames. But here we see that the church is not concentrated and focused in one place, but it is rather spread out to seven places. It is the glory of God in the world. It is the light to the world. There is no coincidence that the church is described as light in the world. That is what we are to be. And Jesus is found in the midst of these lampstands, in the midst of these churches. He knows his churches are being persecuted. He knows John is suffering. And so he is with his people. And we get a glimpse of who Jesus is. That he is glorious in himself. Look at how the vision begins. John turns to see the voice and he sees one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now I have to warn you that as we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to have to get very familiar with the Old Testament. Because John is constantly alluding to the Old Testament. And we see it here too. Jesus is the glorious Son of Man. And that should remind us first and foremost of the book of Daniel. Where the Son of Man is revealed coming with the clouds, with all glory, the ancient of days. And so John begins his prophecy, his revelation, with a glimpse of the glory of God. This is not unlike how the Old Testament prophets began their prophecy. What's one of the first things that we hear from Isaiah? But that glimpse of God in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of His glory. If we were to look at Ezekiel chapter 1, we would see that Ezekiel 2 is bowed down with the glorious vision of the living God. Jesus is glorious in Himself. He is the glorious Son of Man. He is divine. Now you see, this phrase, the Son of Man, can be confusing to us. Because if we were to take a poll and say, Jesus is the Son of Man, what does that make us think of? Very many of us would think of the humanity of Jesus. Because after all, He's the Son of Man. But in the Bible, it's actually the exact opposite. It refers to his deity, the fact that he is truly God. It's one of the reasons why that is Jesus' favorite and most used name for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. And he is described in glorious terms with a long robe and a sash. Now, this is not merely a description of the fashion of the day or his sartorial accompaniment. No, it is a description of Jesus Christ as the high priest. You see, it is the same language that is used in Exodus 28 to describe the high priest as one who is wearing a robe and a sash and having holy garments. Jesus is our high priest. He also has hair like wool. His hair is white as snow. 
Now, I know it is hard for us to realize in our modern day and age that appreciates all things youthful and looks down on the authority and the blessing that comes with old age. But you see, this is a sign of wisdom and power and respect. It's how the Ancient of Days is described in Daniel. This is a good description. It tells us that Jesus is a wise Wonderful king. He's also a king who has eyes with fire-like flame. And this refers to us not only that Jesus sees everything. We know this, don't we? We know this from our earliest days in songs like, Be careful little hands what you do. Right? For the Father up above who is looking down sees everything. This flame-like quality is not just a seeing of everything. It is a a conscious and intense looking into everything. It's an omniscience that is searching. And this is a blessing to the Christian, isn't it? Isn't it good to know that there's nowhere you can go to be out of Jesus' sight? Think about it the way children think about this. Have you ever been out in a store or somewhere perhaps shopping through shopping racks, and you turn and go to look at a different rack and your children turn around and they've lost sight of you? The reaction on their face, the fear that fills their heart, some children are known to yell and scream, thinking they've been abandoned. You see, we get a comfort from knowing that we are always under the watchful eye of our parents. This is true for us with our Heavenly Father as well. And that the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows us, sees us at all times. He's described as one who has feet of bronze, which gives to us the idea that Jesus is the most stable of beings. He will never be toppled. He is firm. And how important is that to us as we struggle with standing firm, to have patient endurance, to look to the one who is all-powerful and who can never be knocked over by any tumult. Our leader stands firm. And he makes us to stand. And then John describes the roar of his voice. That it is like the rush of waters. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up within bicycle distance of Niagara Falls. And occasionally we would go out to the falls. And we do that now when we go up and visit so our kids can see it. And if you go over to the falls and park and go down near where the rapids are or get closer to where the falls are, you can't have a conversation. Because the roar of the water is deafening. It's powerful. But it's also melodious. It's almost like music. It's a wonderful thing to hear. That's what the voice of Jesus is like. When he speaks, he drowns out all others. But it's Almost a musical, magical voice that we long to hear more of. Do you long to hear the voice of Jesus? Not just as He calls you to Himself, but as He bids you obey Him. As He calls you to service. As He calls you to repentance. We need to long to hear the voice of our King. Because He is glorious. He's glorious in himself, but he is also glorious in his roles. We see this 
that he is the keeper of the church. He stands in the midst of the lampstands and he holds the stars in his hand. That is a sign of security. They will never be let go. Jesus holds us in the palms of his hands. And he is also a judge. Do you see the two-edged sword that goes from his mouth? This word for sword is a very unique word for sword. This is not these kind of little oversized knives that even some of you might carry around. This is an ancient Thracian sword that only the largest of men can wield with two hands. And it is two-edged. It is a sword of battle, but it is also a sword of judgment. It shows the power of Jesus Christ. And it reminds us of the sword of the Word of God. Because it is coming out of His mouth. As He speaks words, He speaks words of judgment. And you see, we need to also accept a Jesus who speaks like that. Jesus does not always speak words of comfort and calm. Sometimes he speaks words of action and of judgment, of calls to repentance. Not just upon his church, but words of judgment to the world around us. They're words of protection for his people. Jesus is a glorious king and judge. And he is almighty. What better way can you think of that than to say, John can't even look at him. Do you notice that? Oftentimes in our day and age, we get overly worked up about whether or not we can film Jesus or draw pictures of Jesus. The Bible's view of this is Jesus is so glorious, you can't even look at him. He's like the sun. You have to turn your eyes away because of his glory. It's what the seraphim experienced in Isaiah 6. It's what Ezekiel experiences in Ezekiel 1. Jesus is glorious in himself. He is like the sun. And John sees him and he does something that is so opposite to our modern sensibilities. You might almost think that if John was a modern televangelist or a modern Jesus book writer. He would write Revelation 1 and he would say in verse 17, when I saw him, I went up to him and gave him a high five and said, go Jesus. And we bumped elbows. And I told him how cool it was, the things that he was doing. And we chatted and we had a great time. Unless you think that I'm being sarcastic, read some John Eldridge. That's the way he treats the king of the universe. As a buddy. As a pal. Not so the Jesus here of Revelation 1. John sees him and he falls down as dead. He knows that he's the creature. And Jesus is the creator. He knows the difference. And he falls down as dead. But I want you to also see that Jesus doesn't leave him there. Because you see, Jesus' desire is not to frighten us. It's not to cow us into submission. But immediately what he does is he takes his right hand and he lays it on John and he says, Fear not. Now, you have to get an image of this in your mind. 
John has fallen down as dead, this glorious Jesus with eyes like flame, a face that cannot be seen because it's like the sun, whose voice is like Niagara Falls, who is brilliant in all that he is and he does, and he feels the hand on his shoulder. Can you imagine the fear that might course through him? What have I done? What am I going to do? And he hears words that he heard when Jesus walked on the water toward the boat. Don't be afraid. He hears the words that he heard so many times as he walked with Jesus. Don't be afraid. I'm here. What a blessing. You see, as we look at Jesus, we must see the glorious king, but we also must see this compassionate, trustworthy king. Jesus is one we can trust. He does indeed, as the hymns say, come to calm our fears. He comes to lay a hand on our shoulders and be compassionate toward us. He knows our frame and He meets us to bless us. Jesus is trustworthy because He is compassionate, but He is also trustworthy because He is powerful. He has all life in Him. Look how He describes Himself. I am the first and the last, and I am the living one. In opposition to all of the dead idols, Jesus is alive. Even though He once tells us He was dead, I died. But behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is the powerful, all-living God. And because He lives, we live. He is compassionate He is powerful. And lastly, we're going to see something over and over again in this book, that He is sovereign. Jesus Christ is the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. Jesus is in charge. Cancer's not. Diabetes is not. Sickness is not. Car accidents are not. Divorce is not. Pain is not. Jesus is the sovereign king. He holds your keys to life. He holds the very word of God. He is the word of God. And he brings it to us. And lastly... He is sovereign because not only does He hold the keys, but He's the one who holds the future. He possesses the things that are to be and He reveals them. He makes them so. And there's a little phrase here that I think helps us to get the perspective of this. He describes these seven stars as the seven angels of the seven churches. And I think there are two ways that you can take this. The first and maybe most obvious is that these are some sort of guardian angels of the churches. But I think there's also another way to take this. Angel means messenger or minister. I think we can see that Jesus holds in his hands the ministers of the churches. The churches themselves Jesus Christ holds us in the palm of His hand. We're not out there on our own. He is in sovereign control of us. Not just Bible people, not just famous people, but us. 
He is a compassionate king. He is a trustworthy king. And he is a glorious king. And when we see that, all troubles just fade into the distance, don't they? Because our eyes are set on Jesus. Let's pray.